Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, and welcome aboard the Starship Zero G. Science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1473. I am Rob Jan. Our co-host Megan McHugh is on leave today. Our podcast title is No One Will Pod You. (laughs) Normally I put that second, but today, since I've got a bit to say about our main title, I thought I'd put it second. What if 2024 turns out well? (laughs) Uh, I have to refrain from doing my supervillain laugh there. Well, puny humans might actually do something about climate change in 2023 and people could stop killing people in the seven major, 14 medium and 22 minor ongoing armed conflicts around the third rock from the sun. And as a bonus, the disruption to public health in those locations might not also spawn a lethal COVID variant or other plague. Desperate voters around the world might not elect more extreme right-wing governments in the historically mistaken magic-thinking belief that they will be better off in the long run. And speaking of which, dictator-in-waiting Donald Trump might not get another term to be oath in office as his get-out-of-jail-free card alternative to being potentially incarcerated for any number of crimes currently before the courts. And just saying as a concerned onlooker, it might be well if humans could try to treat other humans as human beings, no matter what assuredly minuscule differences they might want to leverage for their own ends. And I've got to tell you, as an onlooker, looking down on the world, there's not much difference really between people. Ah, what it is to be cursed with knowledge. And so, onward into our future. Or is it your future? I'm not sure. Given all these time zones, they're very complicated. You should make your... uh, have your uh, earth standing still one day. Oops, what a giveaway. All right, so... Been a lot happening in the genre over the past year. We did a bit of a roundup of some of our faves last episode before the Christmas break. And yeah, well, No One Will Save You. That's the name of a movie that I watched on Netflix. It dropped actually fairly late in the year last year, and it's a corker. It's a 2023 US American science fiction horror movie. Written, directed and produced by Brian Duffield. And he is the writer behind the screenplays for several genre movies, adapting books and so on, but also with his own original screenplays. And he's quite well known for that because he's somebody who turned up quite regularly on the blacklist, you know, the, the list, the Hollywood list of scripts written on spec that were widely respected. So... Some of those have actually been picked up. Well, he was uh, one of the scriptwriters for the Insurgent movie from the Divergent series of books. Uh, also worked on Jane Got a Gun in 2015. You know, the Natalie Portman, Joel Edgerton, Ewan McGregor 
revisionist western, and the 2017 horror comedy, The Babysitter. He was also the producer on the sequel, The Babysitter, Killer Queen, too. And the 2020 science fiction horror aquatic movie uh, with uh, Kirsten Stewart, Underwater it was called. Nothing to do with that um, Jane Russell movie from years ago. And also worked on the spontaneous coming-of-age romantic black comedy horror film written and produced and directed that one too, Mr Dufield did. And that was actually his directorial debut. Uh, in the same year, he was on the, the writer of the Netflix movie Love and Monsters, which was a, a great movie, highly recommended by Zero G. Uh, I was also one of the producers for Cocaine Bear, another little bit of a breakout hit, and the showrunner for something I really enjoyed, the Skull Island animated series set in the, uh, the Monarch Legendary Monsters universe but back in the 80s, I think. Now, the movie No One Will Save You. Well, basically, um, there's a woman, Brian Adams, played by Caitlin Deaver. Uh, she lives alone in a two-storey house amongst the woods outside the medium-sized rural town that most of the action centres upon. She has a history in the town which has led to her leading a a fairly isolated existence with her only friend being another woman named Maud Collins, whom she corresponds with by frequent letter drops. And she details her daily life in those letters quite intimately. Now, Caitlin doesn't have many lines to learn playing the character of Brian, um, so it's just as well that she's a fine actress, and it's her expressive performance that stuns throughout this intelligent piano-wire-taught genre thriller. So let's have a, a bit of a track here. It's No One Will Save You by Joseph Trapanese, and this is from the soundtrack of the film of the same name. No One Will Save You. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Yeah, well, a track there by Mr. Trapanese, Joseph Trapanese, No One Will Save You, main title from the film of the same name which we're discussing here on Zero G. Well, actually, we're not discussing it. It's Rob Jan here on his lonesome today, so I'm monologuing. But you can fill in the other side of this conversation, I am sure, wherever you are listening, and I hope you are having a great New Year, so far at least. Well, you know, the bar's pretty low in terms of that. All right, now, Trapanese, the uh, composer for uh, No One Will Save You, has worked on a number of films that we have watched on Zero-G and discussed uh, Tron Legacy, Transformers Age of Extinction. We won't hold that one against him. Uh, did some additional music on that. The Divergent series, Insurgent, obviously um, riffing off the director and writer of this new movie, a connection there. Uh, the Robin Hood movie, Lady and the Tramp, the remake, I think, actually. Uh, 8-Bit Christmas, Spiderhead and The Machine in 2022. But we also know him from television for shows like Berlin Station, The Witcher, Shadow and Bone, uh, Skull Island too. There's the other connection with uh, Duffield, the 
writer and director, and Scott Pilgrim takes off. He's also done video game music like Star Wars, Tales from the Galaxy's Edge. A very taut track there, teaching us a bit of a lesson about being scared. Now, we were saying that uh, the character of Brian Adams is played by Caitlin Deva, uh, US-American actress. I don't think I've actually seen her in anything, but that doesn't mean anything apart from the fact that I have not seen her. Uh, She was known for her role in Justified and Last Man Standing, uh, as well as some genre Productions like the comedy series Home Movie, The Princess Bride, uh, Monsterland, that anthology series, a horror one, and also um, the uh, other anthology series that uh, are not that different from that as well. So it is a fact that when you're doing this kind of thriller genre movie, a lot rides upon the performance of the lead. And she doesn't have many lines at all to learn in this, so it's all in her performance as a physical actress. And it does help that she comes from quite an energetic background, you know, the usual sort of uh, calisthenics, dancer, ice skating, that kind of thing when she was younger. A bit of a child actress, actually. I think she was interested in acting from the the get-go, from the age of five or something. Anyway, she is note perfect in this, and I was absolutely riveted by her performance in this movie. Now, it was filmed in uh, New Orleans, which actually shows, in a, in a few cases, in, a, in some respects, you've got this feeling that it's not in the usual kind of location, although New Orleans has actually become uh, a bit more on the, the mark for television shows and movies uh, since Hurricane Katrina and uh, putting together some of the, uh, the new studios and stuff there. Uh, the budget's only about 22 million US, and it's pretty much all on screen, especially the visual effects provided by the British Indian visual effects company DNEG, which has won heaps of Academy Awards, uh, seven at least, uh, did all sorts of work on Inception, in Interstellar, Ex Machina, Blade Runner 2049, First Man, Tenant, Dune, Harry Potter movies, uh, the Black Mirror episode, Metalhead. I could actually go on there because they've just done so much work. And it is all on screen here. It doesn't look like they've chopped out too much. And it looks great and creepy too. Oh, so creepy in a lot of ways. Now, the char- character of uh, Brian is rather like um, the character in the fantasy horror movie, Hereditary. Um, and like, like uh, Tony Collette in that one, she has a a model in her living room. Not just a model house, but a whole town. Um, The town that she's more or less estranged from, for reasons which will become obvious in the course of the film. She gets deliveries of new pieces for that town every day. So I'm being a little bit elliptical here because I really don't want to spoil this movie for you. It's genre, it's horror, it's really good. So I'm just talking about some of the other aspects that I can say something about, like, hooray for bicycles. The actress isn't old enough to have been one of those kids in 80s genre movies, adventuring around town on a bike with a walkie-talkie and collaborating with their mates, but maybe she's a Stranger Things fan or something because she certainly gets some use out of a bicycle in this film. Uh, There's an excellent use of on-screen resources and a really good use of location sets and, of course, the actors' talents as well. So I thought that all of that was really top-notch. 
It's almost charged with as much subtext as a Jordan Peele or Charlie Brooker piece without being derivative from those, or at least not too much, you know. But you will be able to notice those sorts of things. And the, uh, the horror booze and science fiction procedural, I thought, were all precisely executed. Look, they probably don't make much sense in the long run, like if you sat down and thought about and said, what about this and that? But you certainly don't worry about it too much during the course of the movie. And look, I could probably whistle up all kinds of movie tropes from this uh, and other movies which it reminds me of and TV shows. And yeah, I could, but I think that would be doing you a grave disservice because it would give you too much insight into the film. And you really want to go into this one sort of cold, uh, or maybe even watching it at night in the cold. Who knows? It is called No One Will Rescue You. Uh, it felt like a late entry to me in the uh, in the year's downloads on Netflix, and I really enjoyed it. It was a great little film. Assuming that it actually is on Netflix, um, I will have to double-check on that. I'll get back to you on that. Because uh, there's so many streaming platforms now, and it does get to be a bit confusing after a while. It's not the default setting that it used to be when there was only a couple, or gosh, even back when it was only uh, cable television. Uh, Been quite impressed by a lot of the things um, that I've seen this year uh, on the streaming channels. And you can see why it's become very much of a an alternative to... Ah, see, there I was wrong. Double-checking it now, I will correct myself. It's on Disney+. Plus not Netflix. No one will save you. So stand corrected there. Well, not stand corrected because that's another streaming channel altogether. All right, so we can go back to some more music from Joseph Trapanese's soundtrack for No One Will Save You, and it's called The Red Room. No, nothing to do with Black Widow. Red Room by Joseph Trapanese. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Yeah, another track there. Joseph Trapanese from No One Will Save You, a movie that's dropped recently on Disney Plus and not Netflix, as I mistakenly said before, transposed in my notes, foiled again, but not tinfoiled. Hmm. All right, so rolling on over to a bit of a little bit of a ramble back through the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the MCTU, which is also the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe over the past year. Now, it's been a bit checkered. It hasn't been the overwhelming critical and financial success of some previous phases. I think they're in phase five now. And, you know, there's been a lot of toing and froing about this and cackling about, oh, that's the end of the superhero franchise. Um, they're too woke. They've gone broke. All that sort of nonsense, which doesn't really rate oxygen. And so, therefore, I have no reason to give it any. So we're looking at some of the things that we watched in the last year from the House of Marvel. No more mutants. <laughs> no, not the House of M. All right, so the thing is, it's a mixed bag of movies and television, and it has been for a while. Um, actually, even before they got the 
the more recent uh, Disney Plus Marvel television shows. It's been sort of giving you a, a, a seesaw between movies and television for some time now, but the television shows have been less connected with the movies up until now. They have had connections, though. It has been noted. All right, so we started off in last February with uh, Peyton Reed's Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Now, this one got panned quite a bit. I thought it was less than perfect. I didn't think it was a bad film, but it was not quite hitting all the marks that some previous Marvel movies have done. It was more sort of in that region of... Um, you know, Thor 2, Dark World or one of that sort of area. But I had fun with it. You know, there were reasons at the time why I didn't, wouldn't give it full marks, but I've watched it a couple of times since and I thought, yeah, you know, it's just a... It ambles along. There's some great bits from uh, Paul Rudd, of course, and I uh, actually feel like it was a lot more like Michelle Pfeiffer's film in some at some times, and uh, Michael Douglas, which was all to the good. I quite enjoyed that. And, of course, there was Jonathan Major's standout performance as Kang the Conqueror pre his legal troubles. And, of course, Marvel has dropped Majors as the ongoing Kang the Conqueror, which is actually quite a blow to their plans to include him as the major big bad for the next Avengers movie. There are ways around that. I've been speculating about that myself. Um, you know, I mean, you think about this and sort of go, well, you can recast characters. Why not? Especially a multiversal character. So, you know, there's pr- well precedent for that within the Marvel Universe before they even got into all of that multiversal variant stuff. But, you know, I mean, there is more to that than just it being an obstacle to... Marvel using an actor as a character and of course that's a, an entire separate discussion and I am the last person in the world to say don't go and have a look at that yourself because this is the thing you know it's uh, it's something that we should take into consideration that people have impacts beyond their artistic career in the case of actors all right now apart from Ant-Man and the Wasp in February We also had Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, an animated show which I don't know too many people have seen that in my immediate circle. It is a juvenile show designed for kids, but it's actually really good, hyper-energetic in the same way that those two Sony Spider-Man movies have been, the animated ones. And the showrunner for this, the creator of it, is Lawrence Fishburne, none other, and Steve Lotter. Fishburne was quite fascinated by the whole concept early on and got involved. In fact, I think he was the one who pushed it forward. But this has got some great voice acting in it, just like the Spider-Man animated movies and the recent What If television show. You know, people like Lawrence Fishburne reprising his role as uh, Bill Foster from the MCU, but in a voice form. Uh, David Diggs, Wesley Snipes, Carol Kane, Parker Posey, Juan Carlo Esposito, David Tennant, Edward James Olamos, Andy Garcia, Peter Weller, the old Robocop, Louis Guzman. There's one other role I should mention when I say Peter Weller, and that's um, Buckaroo Bonsai. Uh, Louise Guzman, Jennifer Hudson, Kobe Smulders, um, 
as um, a not yet killed off agent of shield alfred woodard fred tatasio sorry fred tatasio and he's a, a voice actor who we've seen a lot of times across both the Marvel and DC Universe. Well, when I say C, I mean heard his voice. And playing, he plays Devil Dinosaur in Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. And Diamond White plays Luella Lafayette, the title's Moon Girl. And it's actually a really brilliant animated series. I can say quite confidently that if I was a kid again, I would unreservedly love that show. All right, so... Then we come to uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I think it was in May, roughly. Uh, Joachim DeSantos, Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson directing the sequel to the very popular Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Once again, a magnificent kaleidoscope of Spidey lore echoing and carooming across space-time continuum, really leaning into the possibilities of multiversal variants of characters. I thought it was a great film and one of the best superhero films of the year, just as uh, Into the Spider-Verse in its own terms was one of the best of its year of release. All right, from those, we roll over into Secret Invasion in June, showrunner Kyle Bradstreet. Now, look, This was not the best of the Marvel Disney Plus series. Far from it. It was quite muddled in its conception and in the way it landed. Strong performances from everybody involved in it, though. Uh, You know, obviously um, uh, Samuel L. Jackson playing Nick Fury, Ben Mendelsohn playing the Skrull. You know, I thought this was... Amelia Clarke, too, was a real standout in that one, and uh, Olivia Coleman as well. You know, but it, it, it didn't quite gel. There was just some difficulties with it. Uh, we went through that on the show a while back, so I won't reprise all of that. But And it's a kind of a great pity because I think that um, Nick Fury, as portrayed by Samuel L. Jackson, really deserved more of a solid spy-fi show than the one that they got. But anyway, moving along from that to a real triumph of the television year, Loki Season 2 came out in October with Eric Martin at the showrunning helm. And what a glory that was. And once again, (laughs) um, Jonathan Majors stepped up and really performed brilliantly as a couple of Kang variants in that one. Nevertheless, Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson really stole the show for the entire show as they bashed around various universes trying to sort of stymie Kang the Conqueror's ultimate aims. And it came up to this magnificent ending. Now, there's a major spoiler if you haven't seen the series. Not a major spoiler, but a spoiler nevertheless. And it's been a while. It's been since October. So don't listen. Just cover your headphones up if you, or take them off or turn your... Speaker down for a moment or just vibrate your head into another variant multiverse. But yeah, the ending of that. How about that with Loki suddenly deciding what kind of god he wanted to be and putting himself upon the rack, basically, of holding together all of the strands of the multiverses as this sort of Sisyphean god. 
pulling all the chains of reality together and creating the world tree, the Yggdrasil. Oh, my goodness, that was such a great ending. And if that happened to be Tom Hiddleston's swan song as Loki in the MCU, and it actually turns out that it isn't, but we'll get to that, that would be a magnificent way to go. What a story arc. So, you know, any evaluation of the MCT, MCTU <laughs> this in 2023 has to include that as a notable high spot. So, you know, you can pack away and say, well, that one wasn't so good or this one wasn't so bad. And sure, they did lose a lot of money on their movies this year. Not that that really matters to me insofar as I don't have shares in Disney. My God, I might have by now, but it's probably more in Stark Industries than Disney overall. But um, more in terms of, well, I care if, if they don't find it financially viable to continue on. But, you know, they probably have a fair slush fund, <laughs> given uh, the trillions of dollars that they made off everything else. Although it has been a bad year for Disney overall, too, if I may say so. In fact, digressing here, problems with cinema overall, with uh, box office takings, because of so many different reasons. There could be a, a number of different reasons, but one, a couple of the ones that I noticed was cinema attendance was generally just down. Uh, I think opening up streaming has really impacted upon the, not the death of cinema, but it's kind of become more of a niche product. A lot more people are staying home and watching things. And, of course, there's the bounce back from the pandemic as well. So, you know, another whole area has opened up, just as television did in its day. I don't know. Uh, I, I tend to think that the form will have longevity. Um, I think there are th some things on offer about going to a cinema that you just don't get at home. But, you know, they're going to have to be fairly nimble in the way they play this going into the future. Who knows? Probably Tony Stark. But, you know, he's not around to advise us anymore after his gallant sacrifice to save the entire universe. Uh, this year, actually, in October 2023, that was the end game time zone that they were in. All right, so moving on from Loki, we've got The Marvels, which came out in November, another controversial one directed by Via da Costa, Megan McDonnell, and also, who was the third director? Elisa Karasik. Oh, now, this film to me, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great cosmic screwball comedy. Um, without actually much of a romance element too, which is always a, a good thing, breaking the trope of screwball comedies of the past. Uh, Brie Larson, Tiana Paris and Iman Vellani, I thought, all excelled in this movie, particularly with a very laid-back Samuel Jackson directing some of the moments in the film, some of the, um, the, uh, the plot-driven moments. And also we had... Um, Zoe Ashton, who has for a boyfriend Tom Hiddleston, uh, playing the character of Dar Ben. A sketched-in kind of character in this one, I thought. If anything, they could have put more work or more given more screen time to the character. Still, they did have a point. But look, enjoyed the hell out of this film, and I have nothing too bad to say about it. It had a few muddled plot moments, and they could have expanded upon a few things. I would have liked to have seen it to be about half an hour longer, actually. But, you know, it is what it is. And so 
Yeah, the Marvels, November. Again, uh, tanked at the box office for all sorts of reasons, but what can I say? I'll play it as I saw it. I enjoyed it. All right, so the last one to come in was Marvel's What If? And we'll get on to that in a separate segment on the show today. But I thought I'd give you a track from the Marvels, uh, which I haven't played until now because it is a bit of a spoiler. Uh, But, you know, it's been since November and obviously lots of people haven't seen it, but, you know, that's on you, not me. (laughs) So, again, another spoiler here. This is a Voices of Aladna by Laura Karpman from the Marvel soundtrack. And this is a a reasonably uh, hefty track. And the thing about this, which I love, you may recall that we did a a Zero-G special on genre musicals a while back now. And this really added to that because the planet of Aladna in the movie uh, takes a leaf out of the same planet in the comic books where they talk in rhyme in that one, but in this one they put it all to music, which you would do. And this is Voices of Aladdin, and they're all singing about uh, uh, Captain Marvel, who has returned to them from space, bringing along um, uh, the uh, other two Marvels, which is to say Photon and Ms. Marvel. Um, you know, it, so it does give you a, f- a few plot details in this. So if anyone's listening to this and they haven't seen the Marvels yet and they want to, well, then you might want to turn off the radio just for the next 6.35 Minutes. Voices of Aladna, Laura Karpman from The Marvels. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Yeah, that was the two bracket. Well, one bracket and two songs theme for different shows today on Zero G. We first one was Voices of Aladna from the Marvels soundtrack. Uh, Laura Karpman was the composer of that, and she also worked on the music for the Ms. Marvel television series, which is entirely relevant to the Marvels, Lovecraft Country, and also Odyssey Five, amongst other shows. And also lots and lots of video games, including Guardians of Middle-Earth, Kung Fu, Panda 2, EverQuest, Prophecy of Roe, and Field Commander. So she also worked on the What If television series, which we're getting to next, because we've been looking at um, some Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe hits and misses of 2023. So, all right, What If... Marvel's What If Season 2 has dropped on Disney+. Plus. Another late entry in the year. And again, one of the most enjoyable ones for me this year. Uh, an outstanding bit of animated television series, both from its visuals, plotting and performance aspects. And music too. Cutman, there, Laura Cutman was the musician in charge of compositional duties for the first season of What If and in the second season sharing that with Nora Kroll-Rosenbaum for this one. 18 episodes in all, all up on Disney Plus at the moment 
and the second season sort of played out over the last nine days. So they gave us an episode or two each day. So it's actually been like watching a little mini Marvel movie for nine days, and I've had a ball with this. This is a show that was created by A.C. Bradley off the back of the Marvel comics called What If?, which came out in uh, about 1977 and has kept running ever since sort of as one shots and sometimes as little series and it's been a a reliable go-to and basically it allows you to do that multiversal thing exactly as encapsulated in the title asking one hinge point in question in the marvel universe so you know what if uh, in the case of the first season of the series uh, what if peggy carter uh, Agent Carter cap- became Captain Carter as the first Avenger instead of Steve Rogers. Uh, what if King T'Challa became Star-Lord? Um, what if Doctor Strange lost his heart instead of his hands? Uh, then, of course, there was the what if zombies, Marvel zombies playing off the popular series of comic books. What if that was a reality in the verse? Uh, Lots of other ones too. Uh, What if Thor had no brother? What if Ultron won and it really did become the age of Ultron instead of the two and a half hours of Ultron? Uh, What if the Watcher broke his oath and intervened? The Watcher being played by, voiced at least by Jeffrey Wright in the series quite effectively too. Every now and then they break the the fourth wall. He'll be narrating some multiversal event and then somebody will look at him and say, you know, I can hear you. And he'll go, wait, what? (laughs) I quite enjoy that. So we're in the second season now. Um, We've got uh, nine episodes once again. Uh, What if Nebula joined the Nova Corps? And that's a great episode with um, the character... Being on uh, the planet of where the Nova Corps has its headquarters, and in that one, it's set up like a Blade Runner universe. And I thought that was a great idea. It entirely suited the character. She's a, a Nova Corpsman and functions as kind of a detective policeman in the story. Then there's, what if Peter Quill was not fostered out by the Ravagers, if you recall the Guardians of the Galaxy premise. Uh, the the uh, abductee from Earth was supposed to go off and be raised by his father, Kurt Russell, playing Ego, the living planet. But the Ravagers decided to... Well, Yondo did, the leader of the Ravagers, decided to look after him instead. Um, what if that didn't happen? What if he'd actually been delivered to... Ego, the living planet, and came back to Earth looking for revenge at some stage in all of his super-powered glory. Then there's another one which I thought was just pure fun and, of course, very seasonal. What if Happy Hogan, uh, Iron Man's employee, uh, played by John Favreau, saved Christmas? And they riff off of the idea that uh, Happy Hogan can be transformed into a, another superhero or supervillain. In the case of the comic books, this happened a long time ago, and Hogan became the freak after being bombarded by radiation or took a serum or both, something like that. I, I forget the details. But in this case, he becomes a Hulk. So, yes, Hulk Hogan. 
uh, that's an ever a really good storyline because it's sort of happening in between the cracks of the Avengers universe while everybody else is off doing some charitable things for Christmas. Uh, it's him, Darcy, and uh, uh, Kobe Smulders playing um, Agent Hill back at Avengers Tower trying to set up a, a charity Christmas party. I uh, really enjoyed that one, especially like the music, which just riffed off some of the classic Christmas tracks in a subtle way. But it's basically Die Hard <laughs> set in Avengers Tower instead of uh, Nakatoma Plaza with um, Justin Hammer being there instead of Hans Gruber. It's a great story. Awesome. And, yeah, these are alternatives to um, to history, as it were, to fictional history. So, yeah, more power to them for doing these sort of riffs on some classic stories. What if Iron Man ended up on the planet uh, Sarkassian with the Grand Master, you know, the place where in Thor Ragnarok? That's, a, that's an awesome story and actually spoils, uh, or has actually been spoiled last season because last season they bought out a Lego set which had the, uh, the, the Stark Sarkassian um, jerry-built armour that he had for that one, which can also turn into a racing car. So there's a little bit of a spoiler for that one. Another great storyline. Um, what if Captain Carter fought the Hydra Stomper, riffing off the, uh, the first season? The Hydra Stomper is a sort of powered armour that they used in World War II, created by Howard Stark, that the puny Steve Rogers ended up piloting because Captain Carter took the super soldier serum and was exposed to that treatment and become basically Captain Britain because she's got a, a Union Jack on her shield instead of the uh, stars and stripes of the American flag. And that was a great story, that one, uh, where they had to uh, basically run through the uh, Captain America Winter Soldier storyline from the movies, but sort of skewed over for uh, Captain Carter. And she teams up with um, the Black Widow in this one, with a voice actress who sounds so much like Scarlett Johansson. I actually had to really look at the credits to make sure it wasn't her. And by the way, that does not mean that they do not have a full book of incredible casting for this, just as in the first one. They've got so many of the MCU actors reprising their roles across the the whole thing. It's been quite an eye-opener. It's actually been like Avengers light and not so light in some cases. Now, one story, uh, episode six of What If Season 2, is what if Kahoti reshaped the world? And that's an incredible episode. This is an in, entire story set back in, I think, uh, is it the 18th century or the 17th century? Uh, it might be the 17th, actually. And it's set in uh, the uh, Native American Federation or uh, Confederacy, of uh, which encompasses the lands of people who we call the Mohawk Indians. And they've actually really lent into this one and created uh, a Mohawk superhero for this one. Not the first Native American Marvel superhero, uh, Wyatt Wingfoot in the uh, the comic books, uh, uh, even in the, um, uh, the one of the current Marvel uh, uh, Avengers online games, they've got a character called Spider Weaver who's a, a Native American as well. But this one, the Tesseract, uh, crash lands in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy in pre-colonial America, and the energy of the space stone is released in this particular area. And this 
enables the empowered inhabitants of a village or an area of land to fight the Spanish conquistadors. Hell of a story, very well told, and I very much look forward to seeing continuations of this because I, I think it's, a, it's such a big story that they really do need to push more of it into the future. And that character, Cahorti, shows up later on. Uh, she's a, an amazing young woman, and she shows up later on in episodes of What If 2. So this is another theme of the current series of the animated series. They pull off episodes and characters, riff off those from the first season. So once they've decided or discovered that they've become very popular or or uh, they've landed particularly well or they've got a, an ongoing story to tell, they, they rebuild it in the second one. Or variations of it too. Like, you know, we had the Captain Carter animated character uh, become so popular in the What If series that they, they cheekily played off and put uh, Hayley Atwell herself playing the live-action character in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness live-action movie. So, yeah. And then, you know, these are just... These are up to about episode six, and then we slam-dunk into uh, uh, one called What If Hella Found the Ten Rings? And the idea of that one is what if uh, the, uh, the character of Hella back in the days, instead of being exiled to hell was exiled to earth like Thor Odinson was in the comic books and the movies and had to prove herself wary of wearing her um, death dagger crown again you know like that was Molnir the hammer and happy Molnir to you <laughs> while you're out there uh, and that's a great story because it actually pairs her with Wen Wu, the original wielder of the Ten Rings that we saw in uh, Shang-Chi and the, uh, the Ten Rings movie. So an unlikely pair, but Kate Blanchett really pulls out all the stops to be Hella again. And that's such a great thing. And you think, oh, it's so it's terrible that she was killed. Or was she? <laughs> in Thor Ragnarok. So, yeah, she really lets out all the stops for that one. The final two of this season, what if the Avengers assembled in 1602 and what if Strange Supreme intervened in history? Well, the 1602 one is, of course, playing off Neil Gaiman's 1602 universe. And, my gosh, that really breaks out with so many of the original actors reprising their Avengers characters that I have to go back and watch it all again to see if I got it all. But it's an awesome story, uh, picking up with uh, Peggy Carter, Captain Carter, playing the main role in it, and Cahorti uh, as a, um, an equal superhero. And my gosh, when they get the scenes with all of the artefacts of power from the Marvel Universe, you just go, well, this is just a squee moment, a super squee moment. I think, wow, I haven't had so much fun really in the Marvel Universe in such a concentrated form in one thing since Avengers Endgame. Ah, amazing stuff. What if season two on Disney Plus? So many things that happen in this incredible story. All right, so what shall we go out with today on Zero G? I do feel like a track called Last of the Mohicans. Now, that's from the uh, the movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, amongst others. And, yeah, it is um, based upon the James Fenmore Cooper story, which is kind of incomprehensible reading it in its original form. But as a movie, it's, it clicks along quite well. 
Uh, it's just because it's a little bit archaically written. Even for me, I found that one a bit of a, a trouble, but well worth reading, actually. Uh, and it does riff off the idea of the vanishing Americans because that's what they were into at the time, the vanishing Native Americans. And it's a, it's a, a cliche and it's untrue. However... Uh, I do like this one because this version has actually been sung and played by Mohicans. So, you know, a little riff there. Because actually the two characters from Last of the Mohicans that uh, are in the title, not Hawkeye, the uh, the hunter, but the Mohicans, well, they're actually very, very important to the story. And I'll give Cooper that. He did actually create some great characters for that. All right, so we'll go with Last of the Mohicans by Mohicans from their album of the Mohicans name. <laughs> so we've got Kate Reed coming up next in place of Joe Brunatic for Astral Grammar. Glamour? Grammar. My grammar is incorrect there. And we'll pick up again next week more into 2024. And it's such a pity there isn't a four movie out in 2024. Ah, <laughs> okay, that's it for Zero G for today. Thank you very much. And we have Last of the Mohicans. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.